Wake Up with Patty Catter. I love the show. I never miss an episode. It's the best. I turn it on and turn it up. Hello, everybody. You're listening to and watching Wake Up with Patty Catter, and I am your host, Patty Catter. Thank you for joining me today. And I have a very special guest on the show today. His name is Kevin Hines. Kevin, you are an inspiration and literally a miracle. Um, Kevin is an author. He is a public speaker. He's a motivational speaker. And one of the things, I mean, there's just no beating around the bush on this one. One of the things that he is most um, known for is he is one of the few survivors that jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. Um, So we're going to get into his story. But first, Kevin, I would really like it if you would tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself while you were growing up. How were you as a kid? Um, And just a little bit about your background. Absolutely. Glad to. And thank you for having me on, Patty. Nice to meet you. Um, Well, uh, you know, we have in order to tell you about my childhood, I have to tell you about my infancy because my infancy was very traumatic. I was born to biological parents who after they had me and my brother succumbed to drugs and alcohol. Uh, And they they wanted to take care of us. They loved us dearly, but they couldn't because they were so ill with their own diagnosis of manic depression, what we today call bipolar disorder, the very same brain disease I would develop at at 17 and a half years of age prior to jumping off the Golden Gear Bridge at 19. My birth parents, uh, didn't cope well with their depression and their mental illness. They, they turned to drugs and alcohol. And, they, and we, were, we were born in, in, a, in a situation that was in squalor. You know, we, we were in and out of crack motels, the kind of places you paid for by the hour. And if you didn't, you were out. And they would leave us unattended to go do score or sell drugs because they had to keep a roof over our heads. And they, they would leave us often as infants lying on a motel bed with a dangerous drug paraphernalia next to us, sharp metal objects that we touched could kill us. Had we fallen off the bed onto the cement floors, we could have cracked our heads open and died. Uh, and one fateful day, one seedy motel clerk made his most unseedy decision and called the police. And the police come in with Child Protective Services and they swooped us up. And of course, they placed us into the system into foster care. And we bounced around from home to home. And the idea there was that we would be adopted together. But that didn't happen. My brother and I both got a vicious strain of bronchitis in one of the homes and my brother died. My only full-blooded brother died. And we bounced around from home. I bounced around from home to home, very sick in each home. I had been fed in my infancy what my mom and dad could steal. Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk was my first diet. And my gut to brain health was very poor. Well, I ended up landing in the home of Peter and Deborah Muller. Deborah Muller and, and Peter was in the army and often had to be restationed. And they were a transitional home for kids, but they were a good foster home. They were good foster parents, the first good foster parents I would have. And they took care of me very well. Uh, but they couldn't keep me very long because it was transitional. And one fateful day, as I always say, a lovely young woman named Deborah Joan Hines walked in their door. And you know my last name, so you know this works out. Debbie Hines was looking for a little girl to take home that day. And there were several in the house. But the first thing she saw on the carpet floor before her was me. And she said in her journal of those days, which is how I know this whole story, that was the moment she fell in love. And she went back to Pat Hines. He said, let's do it. Let's take him in. He needs us. And they took me in at nine months of age, and I was violently ill all day, every day for the next 30 days. And the 30th day, Debbie came to my crib, and she said, Gio, because my name, my birth name wasn't Kevin Hines. My birth name was Giovanni Gabriel Prasad Adalis. 
Try saying that 10 times fast. Oh. Yeah. And so she, um, she came to my crib on the 30th day and she said, Gio, you're safe. We're not going anywhere. But if you don't knock this off, we're going to give you back, which is a complete contradiction. But she said it was as if my infant mind had fully heard and understood her words for that was the first night we both slept soundly in 30 days. And the next morning she says, I looked up at her and I smiled. Um, and it was this connection we had, you know, uh, and growing up in the Heinz house was a beautiful thing. I didn't think anything could ever go sideways from there. Oh my and, gosh. You know, Pat and Debbie Hines worked so hard for everything they gave us. You know, my dad didn't have it easy. Pat, he had a rough life, rough childhood, parents with alcoholism. They would die very young of liver cirrhosis, liver failure, leaving him with about $17 in his pocket to make his way in the world. And he would literally go from having nothing to being one of the most prominent San Francisco bankers of his time. Mm. My mom, Debbie, would be a 49-year nurse. She just retired this year. She'd have every nursing position you can possibly imagine, starting off in the burn unit at the trauma center uh, all those years ago at Mills Hospital uh, in San Francisco. And uh, they both gave their all to raise three kids that they found from three different families and made into one, into one big family. We're, we're a mixed family. I'm mixed. I'm part Black, part Arawak Indian, part Portuguese, Scottish, Irish, English, Jamaican, Sephardic Jew, and African. And uh, my brother's black, my sister's white. And I always say that when people saw us walking down the street, they were very confused, you know, because <laughs> they're like, what is going on over there? I mean, I'll never forget women would cross the street when we walked with my mom and they would say, excuse me, miss, how did all of that happen? And my, oh. mom, would always, my mom would always be very quick with her reply. And she'd say, oh, you know, different fathers, you know, <laughs> it was hilarious. But, you know, we always had a comeback, but. There were some restaurants that wouldn't even allow us to eat there at night because of what we look like as a family. We got up, we went somewhere else, we ate something else. Good for you. They don't deserve your service. That's right. You bet. Oh my goodness. So how was it in school for you? Um, elementary, junior high school, what kind of kid were you? You know, it was brutal because I went to a school that was predominantly white and I'm not all white. And they tortured me because of it, brutally. They would put me in a trash can upside down every Friday and say, that's what I was. I was garbage because of what I looked like. They'd call me little red N-word every day. They'd beat me up. They'd hold my arms from behind and then punch me. And someone else would punch me in the gut so that no one saw the bruise. It was bad. And I, I ended up leaving that school to go to a probably black school in my eighth grade year. And I fit in immediately. I was accepted immediately. It just goes to show you the difference between cultures mm -hmm. um, and the difference of that time. You know, it was, it was the 1990s uh, and those kids in the first school were just awful. Um, and it was a it was a Catholic school. Like there was no reason that should happen. Um, but they treated me as if I was a second and third class citizen. And they really um, they really uh, showed their hate very clearly. Mm -hmm. um, there was a group that went to the school that consider themselves the sons of a group called the SDI, the Sunset District Irish. And that group has been in trouble for hate crimes. Um, and their sons were like-minded to their fathers. And if you didn't look just like them, you got tortured. Jeez. Yeah, it was terrible. Um, but, but, you know, you grow from that and you, you learn who people really are and you learn about prejudice at a young age and, and racism and bigotry. Um, and, and you grow up going, I'm never going to be like that. We're never going to hurt another person. And, and, and it taught me a valuable lesson. And that lesson was this, uh, you know, never judge anyone for anything, any way they are, their behaviors, because you never know what they've gone through. You never know what they've been through. You never know where they're going. 
And so learning all of that, um, I'm able to uh, have a complete lack of judgment for for anyone based off appearance or or attitude or behavior because I I first go let me find a way to have empathy for this person because what are they dealing with, and and to be fair the people that would beat me up they were getting beaten at home they were getting abused by their fathers and they were getting and they had their own very very struggling times and so I I, I hold empathy for those who who mess with me uh, because I know their lives weren't simple and I know that hurt people hurt people. That's so true. You know, it, it's crazy how people are raised so differently from home to home and their, their background is so different. And one of the things that I talk out about a lot is cyberbullying. Um, a lot of people do cyberbullying. It's, it's really bad. Um, but I will say I did not, I wasn't raised in a perfect home. I had a good home growing up for the most part. There were some, you know, there were some things behind the closed doors, of course. Um, but racism definitely was never allowed in our house, um, which was pretty amazing because back then, you know, people were clicky in some areas, but my parents always taught me, like, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. And we all have the same color of blood. And I cannot well, imagine. I've always said that. Sorry to interrupt. I've always said that. Mm-hmm. When it's inside your body, it's de- deoxygenated and it's blue. When it comes out, it's red. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. We're all the same. We're all the same. Mm-hmm. It's just different pigment. Mm-hmm. And the pigment is based on the location of where we are upon the equator and the location of where the sun is. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between people. And, and it's, it's completely irrelevant, really, when you think about it. It's so mm-hmm. true. I took a DNA test and I have some third and fourth cousins who are African-American. I have people from all over. I have a lot of Danish, Irish. I'm a mixed mutt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all mixed up. Um, but Kevin, I, I want to get to the point of, um, it sounds like obviously you had some trying times in your, in your childhood. What, wh- how did you get to the point in your life where you just weren't sure that you wanted to live anymore? You know, Patty, I was, I was compelled to die by voices in my head. I was having auditory hallucinations that were telling me I had to die. And if, you, if you can't imagine what that's like, imagine putting in your earbuds, your, your headphones, Instead of hearing music or a podcast, you hear a third party voice in your head that you don't recognize as anyone you know or love screaming at you that you have to take your life, screaming at you that you're worthless and have no value, that you are a burden to everyone who loves you and that everyone who loves you would be better off without you. And then imagine that being repeated every day, louder and louder, louder and louder until it becomes deafening. That's where I was the day I attempted to take my life off the Golden Gate Bridge. Hearing that voice that was unrelenting, that was just destroying me. Mm-hmm. Now, next to all of this, I'm having hallucinations, auditory and visual. I'm, I'm having paranoid delusions. I'm seeing things that you couldn't possibly imagine with the best of imaginations. Giant metallic spiders crawling down my ceiling to eat me alive. Death himself hovering through my window with his scythe in his right bony arm, reaching out his other bony hand, turning it upside down and saying, come home with me. Night after night, Monday through Monday, but I never told anybody. I buried and I silenced my pain. And if your listeners and viewers are going to learn one thing from me today and one thing alone, it's this. Don't learn the hard way like I did and never again silence your pain because your pain is valid. Your pain is worthy of my time and others and your pain matters because you do. When we silence our pain, it only bubbles up and bubbles and bubbles until it bursts in things like rage, aggression, violence, substance use disorder, suicidal thoughts, ideas, or actions. And I think that when I learned well, first of all, when I was found in the waters of the Golden Gate Bridge, under the, under the bridge in the water, 
by the Coast Guard after the sea line came in to keep me afloat and keep me safe until the Coast Guard boat arrived. A sea line kept me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived. That's amazing. But after that, the Coast Guard gets there and I was fully conscious and aware. And they look at me and they go, they put me in a neck brace. I said, kid, do you know what you just did? I said, yeah, I just jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And they said, but why? And I had no answer, Patty. I said, I don't know. I thought I had to die today. And the most senior officer leans in. He says, kid, do you understand how many people we pull out of these waters that are already gone? I said, no, sir. And I don't want to know. He said, I'm going to tell you anyway. Said, young man, this unit alone has pulled out 26 dead bodies from these waters and one live one, you. And it was at that moment that I had a bright, shining perspective change. And I knew at that moment that no matter the pain I would ever be in again, I would never again attempt to take my life so long as I would live. To have natural causes or old age or both. So some of my listeners might think or have this question. I know it's one of the first questions I thought of. So when you are hearing these voices, had have you ever done drugs or were you drinking or um, is it just... How long had you been hearing those voices? Was this a normal thing for you growing up? Because I'm kind of curious because I, I have actually talked to some other guests who've had similar situations. And I, I just kind of want to know where yours is maybe coming from. Sure. Uh, I had briefly heard voices as a child. I've never done drugs besides alcohol. I binge drank until blackout a few times in high school and um, early college. But I quit alcohol when I was 21 and I never, never took a sip of alcohol since 21 years of age. So, um, after you, um, well, let's back up. Okay. So, so tell us about the day that you were going to the bridge. That day I hadn't slept in quite a few days. I was having complete psychosis, partially due to the lack of sleep, partially due to the bipolar disorder. And at six in the morning, I entered my father's room and I startled him awake and he goes, Kevin, what's wrong? And I wanted to tell him everything. I said, nothing's wrong, Dad. I just wanted to tell you I love you because in my mind, it was for the very last time. And he said, well, Kevin, I love you too, but it's six in the morning. I don't have to be working until I go back to bed. And he fell soundly asleep with his breathing mask on as quickly as I'd awoken. I entered my room at 6.30. He entered my room at 7. He said, Kevin, I'm very worried about you. I don't know what to do. Why don't you come to work with me today? There was my opportunity right there. I said, no, dad, I got to be at City College today. He said, Kevin, we'll go to the beach, we'll go to the movies, we'll do whatever you want. I just feel like you need to be with me today. What my dad didn't do or say, because no one taught him suicide prevention techniques, was, Kevin, are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life and do you have the means? Those three questions have been proven to halt people in their steps. They don't put the thought in someone's mind who's not already thinking it, but they give someone who is thinking it permission to speak on their pain. And a pain shared is a pain half. But my dad didn't know those tools or techniques. He had talked to my psychiatrist the night before, and the doctor said in no uncertain terms. He said, Patrick, it's just another episode. He'll come out of it in a couple of days. Don't worry about a thing, quote, unquote. The doctor was nearly dead wrong. And that day, I made my way to the Golden Gate Bridge on a bus. I cried the whole bus ride. I yelled aloud on a crowded bus filled with 100 people. Leave me alone. I don't want to die. Why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you? And now 100 people are looking down the barrel of the bus at me and saying nothing except for one man who says to the guy next to him, what the hell's wrong with that kid with a smile on his face? Bus gets to the Golden Gate. I walk back and forth across the bridge walkway for 40 minutes. I pick a, a, a point at the bridge to, to leap off of, and somebody approaches me with a smile. I think this is it. I don't have to do this. This woman is going to save me. She's going to ask me if I'm okay. I can tell her everything. Couldn't tell my dad that morning, but I made a pact with myself on that bus. If one person says, are you okay? Is something wrong? Or can I help you? I tell them everything and beg them to save me. And this woman said, can I, can you take my picture in a, in a European accent? Said, How could she not see my pain right now? But she didn't. I took her picture several times and she walked away and I jumped, but it was the millisecond my hands left that rail 
that I had an instantaneous regret for my actions and this 100% recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life and it was too late. And for 98% of those who've left off that bridge, it's been too late. They never, ever, ever get to share their stories. They're gone. Their families lost them forever. For less than 2%, they've survived. 39 people in 85 years of that bridge being opened. 26 or so remain alive today. Many have died of natural causes or old age. Five of us get to the privilege to stand, walk, and run. They call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world. There's a book of the same name by Ben Sherwood. I get to be here. I get to be here. It's a gift. I'm never going to squander that gift again. Every time I'm suicidal and I live with chronic thoughts of suicide, I'm going to turn to my wife and say, I need help now. And she's going to give me that help. And it would surprise you to know how many people are willing to help if you just ask for it. It's hard. It's hard to break through that suicidal thinking, but it is possible to survive all of those thoughts and not let your thoughts become your actions. You know, um, one thing I've tried to tell my kids grow as they were growing up is always be polite to people that you see. You might be in the grocery store. You might be out on a walk. You might pass somebody on the sidewalk instead of looking down at the ground or over to the side, make eye contact, ask them, hi, how are you? And actually mean it. <laughs> Um, because you really don't know who you're passing by when you are explaining those feelings of being on the bridge, just wishing, and even on the bus, just wishing that somebody really cared. Oh my gosh. It was just like, that's very powerful because how many people every day do we pass? How many people every day go home and maybe are facing some despair or depression or suicidal thoughts? It's very important. So as soon as you hit the water, um, I assume that you did not go without injury. Is that right? Falling from that height at that speed is like hitting a solid brick wall. You literally stop for less than a second and a vacuum sucks you under 70 feet. Upon impact, I shattered my T12, L1, and L2 lower vertebrae into shards. I missed severing my spinal cord that day by two millimeters. So when I say I get to be here, I really mean it. Mm -hmm. And your actions after... Um, have greatly impacted hundreds, probably thousands of people um, because of your speaking, your book. Um, and is there anything that you could tell somebody who's listening right now who may be having suicidal thoughts or maybe, you know, they've lost somebody to suicide? I know, um, you know, those of you listening know about my, my dad and, um, and it's hard sometimes to think like, geez, how, you know, how do you kind of keep going every day? Um, what do you tell people who are just kind of like, okay, life is sucking right now? <laughs> well, to the folks that have lost someone to suicide, let's address them first. I've lost 11 people to suicide that I love. That's 11 people too many. One is one person too many. Um, we've got to stop asking the question why. It is an unanswerable question. The person is no longer here. You could only get a why from their own voice. We must begin to ask the question, how? How do we look to the living and remain here to move forward? I don't think you can move on from a suicide. I think that is impossible. How do you ask the question, how, and look to the living and move forward? Moving forward is a lot different than moving on. Remember them, love them, honor them, hold their memories dear, hold the positive and fun and good memories dear and write those down. Celebrate their birthday with family and friends, with cake and a candle, 
And only you're, on that day, you're only allowed to recite the good times. For the people that are considering suicide or have attempted in the past, let me say this. We are all going to die. It's inevitable. None of us are immortal. There's no such thing as vampires. All right. None of us are going to be here forever. Give yourself time plus hard work for things to change. I've lived 20 years past my near fatal attempt with chronic thoughts of suicide. And I stay alive every time because I've developed self-awareness techniques to stabilize my mental pain. And mostly important, most importantly, because I've asked for help every time. I have been in airports having complete paranoid delusions without my support network, and I've gone to TSA agents and said, I need help now. Now they freak out because it's the airport and they're worried about security and you don't get to fly that day, but you get to safety and you get to live another day. All right. I think probably focusing on your why also helps. I think, oh boy, everybody has such a journey. Um, We all have our own journey. And I know for me, um, looking at the loss of my dad, for instance, um, I just look at it as that was his journey. His journey is not my journey. My, I have a why, what are my whys? And I focus on those things. And for you, you've reached so many people through your story. And it's just very apparent that you're definitely a miracle. Um, and your story is incredibly impactful, Also, to your adopted family, they have got to be so proud of you right now. Um, And, and that's, I mean, that's rewarding. You know, it's, uh, I've, I've been lucky enough to travel the world now. Um, I was traveling for the last six years, upwards of 320, 345 days a year, sharing my story with, in person, I've shared my story with over 2 million people in the last 20 years because I started sharing the story in 2001 right after my attempt. And I've shared my story with nearly a billion people online through social media and through video video media. Well, I pretty much low-balled that, didn't I? That's okay. <laughs> no, no worries. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the number. But I'm just saying in that, I've received hundreds of thousands of messages that have come into me where people say, this story did this, this story did that, this story saved my life, this story brought me back to faith, this story brought me to become a psychologist, whatever the whatever the story did. And I don't believe I do that. I believe that I'm a conduit. I'm giving a message. People are hearing it. They go home, they do the work, and they save and change and augment their own life to be to 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 follow their own destiny. But but the message is clear and it, it connects to people. When you have a story that is multifaceted, that has multi-layers. It can connect to a lot of people. A lot of people relate to it and they find themselves in it and then they change their life. And that is amazing. The power of story is amazing. It's not my story that matters. There are millions, probably billions of stories out there and all of them matter as much as mine. And and if you find a way to tell your story, just know that, that if you tell your story, people become open enough to share theirs. And I cannot tell you how many times, and by the way, when pre-COVID, I, I, if I have a room of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people, I will wait until the last person wants to talk to me before I leave. You know, I see these speakers that go out there and they're not doing it to give back. They're doing it to earn money. And they're, they're, they get on stage, they give a keynote, and they go out the back entrance. Mm-hmm. That doesn't do anything for anybody. That's just you collecting a paycheck. I love to sit down in a chair sometimes because my back hurts. I can't always stand the whole time. And hear everybody's story and give everybody I can a hug pre-COVID, of course. But, you know, I can't wait till those days come back. And 
and people divulge their whole life to you in however much time you have. And it's a gift. It's hard. It's hard to hear the pain of a thousand people, but it's important because that's why they came there. They came there to get a, a real authentic view into someone who survived and wants you to survive too. That's so true. Did you ever realize that what you're doing too is generational? So you're impacting somebody today, but you don't know, for instance, teenagers, right? You maybe have talked to some teenagers in, in your early times of speaking, and now they're grown and they've got, they have families and they have yeah. kids. Yeah. That's no, amazing. I realize that because mm-hmm. I've, got, I've, I've given talks to then high school students who, who have kids who reach out to me online and say, my son's now dealing with bipolar disorder. And I feel like I know what to do because of your speech. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it is generational. It is amazing. There's there's, there's a, a thousand of those kinds of stories where, where it's been like, I've, you know, all of my family and friends, no matter if they're older than me or younger than me, come to me when they're struggling or their loved one is struggling. And I, I feel like that's one of the best gifts I could have been given. I got to live to try to make an impact on people that, you know, just are in my circle. Forget those out of my circle. That That's been wonderful too. But but, you know, when you when you can impact someone you went to high school with or college with and their kids and their kids, kids, it, it's it's amazing. You know, being having been do this for done this for 20 years, um, there's a lot of people that call on me for a consultation. And I and I give it freely just to just because it's the right thing to do. So one of the things that I wonder about is the kids that you went to school with who were kind of bullies, have you heard yeah. from any of them since then? You know, I, I, uh, I went to the same church that's right next to the school that I went to as an adult. <clears throat> and I did get married there, by the way, um, which, which was because the priest was just such a wonderful man. Um, and he inspired me to speak about my story, um, which I, was the first speech I ever had was at that school. And not to digress, but when I gave that speech, it was a little bit of an anti-bullying speech because it was the same school I went to that tortured me. Mm-hmm. And when they all when they all wrote letters to me afterwards, 120 kids, the letter I got from the priest was that all the kids went to each other and said sorry for their bullying to each other. And so they wouldn't do it again anymore. Wow. That's amazing. And, me. and, and when that happened, um, apparently they didn't bully each other for the rest of the year. They were they were just really good about it. And they 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 were those who were bullies got forgiven. And those who were the bullied forgave the bully and just said, it's okay. We love you anyway, you know? And it was amazing. Um, but to answer your question, um, I was at church with my wife and I ran into one of them and he couldn't have been more kind. He grew up, he grew up and he changed. Okay. And, and, you know, you, you see that and you go, there's hope for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, where can people find you on social media? Um, well, my, my favorite place is, is youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, because that is my YouTube channel. Uh, and it's got 500 plus videos, all designed to help you stabilize your life and be better brain well and change your life. Um, my, my, all my social medias are at Kevin Hines story. So if you go to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or, 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 um, or TikTok, you find me at Kevin Hines story. That's it, you know, K-E-V-I-N-H-I-N-E-S-S-T-O-R-Y. Um, you know, the, reach out to me. I'm, I'm, I'm accessible. If, the best place to reach me, though, is on YouTube because I answer all my comments. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us really quick about this book you just released called The Third Rail. It sounds so good. So The Third Rail is right here. And it's if you can see that, it's In My Mania, I Became. And this is a picture of Jesse Cohen. 
And it's written by Jesse Cohen and myself in the first person from his perspective. And Jesse was a Tulane law student uh, in the height of the organized crime era in Louisiana in the 1990s. He was a young 20 something year old man who in his mania of bipolar disorder would go out at night with a black suit, black, black shirt, black tie, black shoes, a baton, a couple of weapons. And he would, he became in his mania a vigilante and he would take down criminals using a police scanner and tactical um, uh, training from a Vietnam war veteran named Gus. And, and he would really go out and he would take out criminals who were engaging in crimes. He would zip tie them and put, put signs on them ready for the police. Like you would see Batman do. And, and, and he did this for some time before, you know, the police caught up to him and psych wards caught up to him. And it, he, he lived a wild and crazy and I hate using that term because I, I I don't like <laughs> using it crazy, but for lack of a better term, it was a wild life. And he writes in his in the end, he he writes in the forward of the book um, how he wants people to learn from his mistakes and learn about bipolar disorder and mania and who are suicidal to always fight to be here and to to never take their lives. And the book is really powerful in the way that it paints the picture of someone with bipolar mania in a way that is so palpable. You can feel every page. It's like you're there in his life and, and it's vivid and he's a phenomenal writer. Uh, and the tragic part about his story is that Jesse died from his depression. He died by suicide. We were writing the book and, and, and he didn't get to finish it. I finished the book with his wife, Mari. Um, and, and this is his legacy. This is his way to say, don't take your life and don't learn the hard way like I did. And it's powerful. And people say that when they read it, they read it in two hours because it's such a, a fast read because you're so enthralled by it. Mm -hmm. um, but but but, you know, the, the point of this book is is to help people see what it's like inside themselves if they're living with mania or, or struggling with depression or, or, or even schizophrenia, you know, um, any any mental struggle, because there's pieces of the book where you go, I can. I can fight this. I can be here tomorrow. Um, and, um, you know, Jesse was a brother to me and I'm, I'm sad we lost him, devastated. And I think about it every day. Um, but this book, I, I often find myself rereading it to, to just imagine he's still here. Um, and it's powerful. It's moving for sure. That's incredible. I think that he would be really proud of you too. Um, I un unfortunately lost a friend. Um, I was trying to help him. He was a veteran. And um, the last conversation we had is he said, I'm going to get better so I can help more veterans. You keep doing what you're doing. So that's why I continue to do what I do. And I think that your friend definitely would want you to continue doing what you're doing because you're, you're really, I'm sure a million people probably a billion people have told you, you are a miracle and your story is incredible. And it's so important and so insightful um, on many different levels. I like how you can tell your story, but also kind of flip it around. So people who are passerbys on the street can start thinking about their fellow human beings that are next to them. One of my favorite stories about this, the travels I've made is not about me. It's, it's, it's about it's about, uh, I was at a crisis, um, I was I was keynoting the crisis text line, Lollapalooza, they call it, in their big, their big annual event. And I mentioned in that, if you see someone, say something, go up to them, ask them if they're okay, and really mean it when you want to know the answer. And don't let them give you a wishy-washy answer. Dig deep, you could save a life. 
Well, <clears throat> a few weeks go by and I get an email from a young lady who was one of the one of the crisis text line uh, call, call receivers and or no, text, text responders. And she said, I was I was coming home from a grocery store and I was putting my groceries in my house. And I saw on the opposite side of the street on the bus stop, this young man in his 20s just crying into his hands, just crying his eyes out. And she goes inside, she puts the groceries away and she's looking out the window. He's still crying with his hands in his eyes. And she goes, Kevin told me I have to go see how he's doing. And she went out there and she sat next to him and she said, you're breaking my heart. What's wrong? And he kind of looked at her like, what the heck? And he basically was like, why do you care? And she was like, because I'm human. And so are you. What's going on? Can I help you? And he said, my fiance just left me for somebody else or something like that. And, and he was heartbroken and he was considering suicide. And she got him to a place where he realized how valuable he was. She was trained to do that. That's her training. And she, she had a major part in saving his life that day. You know, we can all be that conduit for change if we just reach into people in lethal emotional pain. Absolutely. Wow. Kevin, thank you for being on the show. Um, I don't know even a better way to end it. That was perfect. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for listening to your heart and using your voice to impact people on all different levels. And I know I appreciate you and your story is so impactful. Um, and I know my listeners are going to love it and everybody make sure that you check out the third rail and um, go to Kevin's website. If you're watching, you're going to see the links here. If you're listening, you can go through the show notes and you're going to see the um, link Kevin's links on my show notes and on my website. And again, thank you, Kevin, for being such a fantastic guest and for sharing your heart and your story. Thank you, Patty. Nice to meet you. Thank Appreciate you. It. Nice to meet you too. Thank you everybody for listening. Have a great week until next time you're listening to wake up with Patty Catter. Thank you for listening to Wake Up with Patty Catter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Follow Patty at Patty Catter on Facebook and Instagram. Get social. You can now watch Wake Up with Patty Catter on Amazon TV and Roku. It's the only podcast I listen to. Be sure to check out Patty's apparel line, The Patriotic Mermaid at thepatrioticmermaid.com and on social media at The Patriotic Mermaid. I love it.